This podcast is made possible by the support of Lilly Oncology. Hello, everyone. I'm Jamie DiPolo, the senior editor at breastcancer.org. Welcome to this edition of our podcast. Our guest is Kelly Groslux. For nearly 25 years, Kelly has dedicated her practice to minimizing suffering through her work in oncology, palliative care, and hospice. An experienced therapist, Kelly is a licensed clinical social worker and a board-certified diplomat in clinical social work. She also earned a fellowship in grief counseling from the American Academy of Health Professionals. Kelly speaks frequently about end-of-life issues, including care, grief, and loss. Her passionate and supportive demeanor helps patients, caregivers, and health professionals connect with the wisdom of making life more meaningful, coping with depression and anxiety, transforming fear into hope, healing versus curing, and the wisdom of dying a good death. Kelly is going to talk to us today about some difficult issues, but some very important issues. We're going to talk about facing the end of life. Kelly, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you for the invitation. This is a hard topic, but as we all know, it's a very important topic. And so just as every breast cancer is different, every person's reaction to facing end-of-life issues is going to be different. Correct. How can someone think about these things without panicking or becoming really upset? Is there sort of a a step-by-step process that they can go through? Well, you know, it, it is a, first of all, I want to say it is a hard topic, and yet it's a topic that most of my patients that I work with who have metastatic disease have certainly thought about at some point, and actually not talking about it is harder than talking about it. So I'm kudos to breastcancer.org for taking the initiative and having this conversation. You know, my goal isn't to necessarily um, approach this so that people don't panic per se. I think whatever feelings come up for people, they need to have those feelings and panic or anxiety initially would be something that I would expect. It's because it's a shift and it's a change in treatment. It's a change in what we know. Eventually, obviously we want to try and help people be calmer and be able to make good decisions. But if you're, if you're feeling anxious or your family's feeling anxious, certainly that is part of, of all of this. Sometimes actually anxiety or discomfort in how we're feeling can motivate us to make decisions or can motivate us to want different. And I think that's important to know, first of all, is that I would expect that. I would expect that there is going to be some ambivalence, there's going to be some anxiety that comes along with hearing that we do not have any more medical treatment to try and manage this cancer. Um, like I talked, like I've talked about in the past, there are a lot of options that we can offer once treatment stops, and we can get into those later, which would be palliative care, hospice, which is a very aggressive form of comfort care psychologically, physically, emotionally, et cetera. So one of the things that I want people to do, first of all, is just kind of sit with the news, not have to try to figure it out right now, all in one day, but kind of sit with it. If there arises panic, anxiety attacks, whatever it may be, it would be important to look at, do I need some medication to help me calm down the anxiety. This would be also very expected. And a lot of the people I work with will take something so that they can be calmer and 
somewhat more clear in their thinking so that they can make the best decisions that they can make for themselves. In terms of a step-by-step, you know, I always encourage people, first of all, just to be wherever they're at. And sometimes people don't have an initial reaction of anxiety because they have been living in this body. They've been living with this disease. They know that they are declining. They know that things are not getting better. And so sometimes the news that they hear actually is just an affirmation or, um, I mean, I've even had people say to me, it's kind of a relief to know where I stand. It's really, it's really being where you're at. And again, if, if it's a physiological kind of panic disorder, so to speak, that we're seeing, or the person is not able to concentrate, racing heart, not sleeping, feeling really agitated, those things for a long period of time, then we're looking at more needing a medication from the physician. So then we can start making some steps. Um, Again, it's important to reassure yourself that you're not going to be abandoned, that there's going to be a healthcare team, there's going to be your support people that are going to see you through this. And so that can also help ease some of the anxiety. I know on our discussion boards, some women have told us that when they made the decision to stop treatment, some of their friends or family members felt they were giving up. How do you counsel patients about making that decision and then telling their loved ones about it in a way that sort of, if, if possible, to kind of offset those kinds of remarks. You know, this is such a hard thing for me when I see this, um, when I see people having to put the energy into this because I don't know one person living with metastatic disease that hasn't done everything they can do to try and, you know, treat the cancer to the best that they can. And some people have tried way beyond what's even medically recommended And so it is very sad when I work with people and I see that they not only on top of their own grief and loss and anxiety about the decision, they're having to now manage the experiences or the feelings of their family. And that's just an added layer that I always feel such empathy for people because that makes it so difficult. And first of all, I want to, you know, make a distinction that people are not giving up they're actually making good choices. And I think that's, they're making good choices based on all the information that they have from their healthcare team, from their own intuition, from their own body. And I think that's an important distinction for people to hear that there isn't a giving up, so to speak. It's, it's actually making good informed decisions. And I think that's a really important piece that we have to specify with this because it's, you know, the the giving up piece kind of plays into that whole analogy that a lot of women that I work with that have metastatic breast cancer don't like the terms battle or fight. And this, this kind of plays into this, like they're giving up their fight, they're giving up their battle. I don't see it that way. I see it as that when the decision to stop treatment, which oftentimes is a very appropriate decision, and it's based on a lot of different things, Specifically, the body is not responding to the treatment and the person is feeling very sick, 
and a lot of pain, a lot of side effects. So it's actually an informed good decision to make. And I think that that's really important that people make that distinction. Another thing I want to say is that everybody's allowed to have their feelings. And so if a family member is feeling upset about this or a loved one's feeling upset about it, we need to let them have that. And what I encourage my patients to do is to put a boundary around it. Sometimes sometimes you have to put a boundary around it. And you may not be able to interact as much with family or friends who are pressuring you or or saying things like you're giving up. You may have to distance yourself from them for a while. Let them have their feelings because under those feelings are generally feelings of fear and grief and it comes from a place of love, but it's not helpful when you're going through those decisions and trying to make end-of-life choices for yourself. And so sometimes we have to distance ourselves from the people we love the most, but it, it often is in our best interest. We also have to say things to people like, you cannot rely on me for the support of this decision. You're going to have to seek some outside counsel and get support, whether that's through a therapist or a person of faith or their own friends, whatever that may be. But the person living with the disease cannot be the support person for everybody around them trying to manage everybody's feelings. Right. They have to conserve their energy for themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, but again, I just think, you know, because I have many people that come into my office that will say to me, I've really let down my family by, by deciding to stop treatment. And this isn't, it just, to me, it's not a giving up at all. It's a surrendering and it's a making an informed, good decision. And I think that's the difference. And Oftentimes, I see people treat way beyond what they likely should be doing because, and they've suffered long enough. And that's, if you're a caregiver or a loved one listening today, I hope that you can start looking at this, acknowledge your pain and your grief, because this is obviously very painful. But also at the same time, think of the person that you love who has worked so hard and has exhausted often every option that has been offered to her. And I think it's important that we start looking at this as this is the best decision that can be made for them, for their quality of life, and that we no longer want to see them suffer. People don't stop treatment unless there's a reason. I mean, it's not just something people decide to stop. There generally is a very good reason for it. It's whether it's either their bodies aren't tolerating it, the disease is not responding, the side effects are so horrific, the treatments themselves can be what possibly could kill somebody versus the disease. So it's important to remember that when people stop treatment, it often has a very good basis and a lot of decisions and discussions that have gone into it. Very, very good advice. Now, when someone has come to terms with end of life, made the decision to stop treatment, are there things she should do or focus on first? Oftentimes she has, I mean, if, you know, if you have small children or, I, I see most people very, very worried about the people that they love. How is this going to affect the people that they love? 
And there's a time and a place for that. But the first person you have to start with is yourself. And one of the things that I will often ask women, first of all, um, I will ask them generally the week that they make the decision. How do you feel about the decision now that it's made to stop treatment? How do you feel about the information that you are terminal and facing the end of your life? And then I'll check in again with them in a couple weeks when I see them because sometimes things can change. But the person you have to start with is yourself. And I will do an exercise with people where I will ask them, is there anything you haven't said to somebody that you need to say? Whether it's thank you, I love you, I forgive you, I'm sorry. And those are things that I will talk with women about at the end because I want her to be in the best psychological place and emotional place that she can be as she's dying. And so we start with yourself. Then another thing that I will often do is I will say, is there anybody that you would want a letter written to for after you die, whether it's a child's graduation, a child's birthday, an anniversary, a thank you letter. And oftentimes, as difficult as these letters are, most people will say yes. So we sit down together and we write birthday cards, anniversary cards, wedding cards, graduation cards, whatever that may be for this person that they love so that after they have died, they will be represented at these, at these events. So there's a lot of tasks that can go into the end-of-life work so that people can feel good about themselves. And I really encourage people, we are not very good at being selfish as women. And I think it's important, and it's not even being selfish, but if there's at any time in your life where you're going to be selfish with your energy, it's at the end. And I think it's really important for people to hear and get the permission that they get to absolutely focus on what they need and not necessarily what everyone else's needs are yet. Again, there's a time and a place for that, but initially we have to encourage people to really focus on what they need. That also includes who do they want around? Where do they want to die? What types of um, surroundings do they want to have? Do they want to be more lucid? Do they want, is their number one issue pain control? Is their number one issue being alert so they can talk with people? These are just discussions that hopefully have happened earlier on through advanced directives, et cetera. But if they haven't, this would be the place to start. I've heard you say that you think hospice often gets involved too late in the whole process. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and also maybe some suggestions about how somebody could find a hospice that best suits their needs? I'm glad you brought this up. I do feel that, you know, the average stay in hospice um, the statistics keep changing, but we often see them three, it's three to seven days at the end of somebody's life. Um, and it's, it's, sometimes it's hours. Because I'm very biased and I am a, I have a hospice background and I know what hospice can offer to people, I feel it's a real unfortunate neglect at the end of life if people don't utilize it 
at an earlier time. Now, hospice, you cannot be in hospice if you are actively treating your cancer. Um, so that is one of the qualifications that deters people from going into hospice. That's where then we want to look into palliative care. And we would start with palliative care because you can still be in treatment in palliative care, but it has a wonderful philosophy of looking at comfort and it can be a nice bridge to hospice. Hospice is a conversation that really should be introduced to people the moment they find out that their their disease is metastatic or terminal. And it doesn't mean that they're going to go into hospice when the conversation starts, but it is something that should be talked about as the option that will be available to people later on. It's something that I would love to see more of our health systems educate people earlier on in the process because in the end, when you're told this, naturally you're going to have all of these reactions. Then you're thrown into, okay, we want you to meet with this team and it just, it can be real chaotic. And I think that it's, it's really unfortunate when it goes that way versus knowing about it ahead of time and then having that as part of your, I don't know what you want to call it, your options for at the end of life. Now, one of the things people feel, again, back to the giving up, I have heard many people say, well, I'll call hospice when it's really bad. And again, hospice, you know, I have hospice patients, Jamie, right now that are traveling around the world. And they are probably feeling the best they have felt since they were diagnosed. And that has a lot to do with they're not in treatment. They're getting really good pain control. They're doing the things in their life that they want to be doing. They're focusing on what matters. And they're really focusing on just living each day. They're not bogged down with the anxiety and the stress of, is the treatment working? What is my scan going to look like? There's this liberating relief oftentimes that I can see with people in hospice. So hospice isn't a situation necessarily where you get into bed and you don't ever come out and you stop living. It's actually the opposite. There is a lot of focus on living well until you die. And so if you are living with metastatic disease and you're still getting treatment, that doesn't mean you can't be exploring what is hospice? What does it look like? What are my options? Most of the larger cities have multiple hospices that either come into the home or there are private freestanding hospices where you can go and receive care until you die. Hospice is a philosophy of care. It's not a place per se. And so we can really do hospice wherever the person is living. And the Generally, I would say probably 85% of my patients would like to die at home if that's an option. Um, hospice is not a 24-hour service, and so sometimes that doesn't work. But I think finding out about what the options are can take away some of the myths about how scary this is or that I lose control if I go into hospice or I'm throwing in the play, you know, I'm, whatever it may be it's important that people really find out what it is. If you meet with a hospice team and you're not comfortable with the team per se, 
again, ask your physician or ask your nurse coordinator or ask a social worker that you work with if there are other options. And sometimes there's just not a personality connection. There tends to be other options, again, in bigger cities. If you live in rural areas, you may only have one option. Um, and, you know, so hopefully there would be a connection. But I really recommend, I start talking about it early on with my patients because it's, it's more difficult to take it all in and receive it in the end when you're getting all this information. I've never, and I, and I, well, I will add that I have never, ever had a patient say to me, I regret going into hospice. I have heard many times, I regret not doing this sooner. You brought up somebody or a person being a parent of young children earlier. How does someone talk to a child about this? These are some pretty big and scary concepts. Are there guides that someone can turn to to help You know, use appropriate language and appropriate concepts? So probably one of the most difficult things that I can imagine is being a parent and having to leave your children. It's, you know, obviously any of us that are our parents would certainly be able to identify the amount of anxiety that would go into this and the amount of grief that would go into this. First of all, we want to be very conscientious of what the child's age is. Um, the younger children, eight and under, seven and under, are going to need very simplistic terms, and they're going to need short conversations. The number one rule, though, is that children should always be involved in the end of life. The least, you know, if we, if we try to protect the child, which is always out of good intention, it often ends up hurting them because they can sense when there's this secret in the house. No one's talking to them about it, but children are very perceptive of energy and they can definitely sense when things are tense, when things aren't right, they'll start filling in their own ideas. Some children will take it on as they must have done something wrong or they must be naughty and that's why people aren't talking to them. People are ignoring them and obviously none of us want that. So when the news has been given that mommy is going to die. We have to sit down with the children. We have to pick a time that is somewhat quiet and uninterrupted. And we have to sit down with children and we have to ask to start by asking them that we want to make sure they have a concept of what has been going on. Yes, they know mommy has been sick. Mom has cancer. And these are important to use these words, cancer, sick, treatment, chemotherapy, radiation, whatever the terms are, we kids can kids can hear them. And once you get a, an understanding of what the child understands, then you can go from there. And it is important again with the younger children to use more brief things that the medicine has stopped working and mommy is going to die. We don't know when, but mommy is going to die. Another thing that's very important is to use the direct language of dying versus passing on or she's going to go to sleep or we do not want to use euphemisms. We really want to say what is happening, death and dying, even as, even to a younger child. 
Then we want to follow up with questions about, do you know what that means? And then, you know, there's, there's a really good book um, by Leo Bascalier called Freddie the, or Freddie the Fallen Leaf. And there's some, I mean, there's wonderful resources online on how to talk to children. It's really good to try and use a storybook with kids 10 and under that you can go through and show them pictures, have them ask questions, talk to them, um, you know, in, in a kind of a story form. They may initially not have questions. Teenagers may be very upset but very angry and want to leave and not want to engage. Do not force the conversation. Our role as a parent is just to provide them with the information. It's not a one-and-done conversation. It's something we're going to follow up with. We always want to alert the schools, whether it's the school counselor, the school nurse, the principal, the teachers. We always want to alert the schools that this is going on in our family. Seek support from the child's school. Always notify the pediatrician. The pediatrician may have some resources available right in their clinic um, that could support the child. And, you know, again, it's reassuring the child we're going to have people helping us. We're going to have people supporting us. You're always going to be okay. You can always come and ask me questions. You, you know, your life is, we're going to try to keep it somewhat in the same structure. You know, you'll be able to still go to school. If you want to go to school, you'll be able to still eat your favorite foods. You'll be able to still go and do things with your friends when it's appropriate and those types of things. But the bottom line with children and the greatest mistake made with children is when people don't include them and it is all out of what we think we're protecting them, but it actually is harmful to them. And so the, the bottom line is involve the child to an age appropriateness. And then if they only want to sit and have a conversation for three seconds, that's fine. Our job at least is just to inform and then we'll come back and discuss it. Okay, thank you, Kelly. That it, it just sounds so incredibly hard, but what you have said there is so helpful. Um, I want to touch on you've talked about dying a good death, and what what does that mean? We focus very much on having a good life. I mean, that's we are all pretty accustomed to what that means. It's you know we 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 bring things into our world that we enjoy. We are with the people that we love. We avoid things that cause us hurt and harm. It's the same in death. And a good death should resemble to us what our life looked like. And if we are somebody that likes it very quiet, likes nature, likes music, those types of things, we will want that in our dying. I mean, that, that's what a good death to me is, is that it resembles what your good life looked like. A good death in a physical standpoint is that your pain and your symptoms would be managed to the best of their ability. In today's day and age, we should not have people in pain when they're dying. We have expert hospice nurses, expert hospice physicians, and teams where the pain should not be an issue. And I think if you think about 
one of the things that people are scared of in the dying process, at least from what I've heard over the years, it's the suffering and the pain. And there's, again, there's no reason that people should be in pain. Now, a good death also means that your suffering will be addressed and pain and suffering are different. Pain is the physical or the symptoms that come physically from the body, nausea, headaches, um, you know, different symptoms that we might have in hands or feet, being too cold, being too hot. That's, that's more the, the physicalness. The suffering is the mental anguish that people feel when they're dying. The grief of letting go of people, the having to say goodbye, the things that they maybe have not been forgiven for or that they have not been able to say they're sorry, the estranged relationships that have happened, the, um, there might be anxiety or depression that's, that's real prevalent. We also in hospice will address those. And I think to, for a good death, we would, not, we would want all of those addressed. Think about if you're listening today and you are facing the end of your life, think about what makes your life a good life. Who makes your life a good life? And that is what we want to invite in at the end with our death. And, you know, we all live until we die. And I think as simplistic as that term is, it's, it's also profound because when I see people dying, I see them wanting and craving things and hoping for things in their death that they also had in their life. They may be somebody who absolutely loved animals and were very, very close to their animals. A good death to them would be that their animal would be with them or at least be available to them in the end. If they are somebody that really enjoyed a lot of family around, liked to party, liked it loud, liked it, they are likely going to be that person that wants a lot of people around, doesn't care if there's a lot of people in the room, always wants somebody in the house, wants people to kind of keep going on, have conversation, have dinners. You know, I was with a woman who always called... Um, Five, at five o'clock, she always wanted her family to have a cocktail, and she called it the happy hour of dying. And it was just this beautiful ritual that this family did for two weeks straight in her honor. And she didn't drink, but she would sit there with them, and she really enjoyed this. Well, she was a woman that always hosted the parties, always encouraged people to have a good time. And she told me to her that was a good death, that if the people in her life were happy, that, of course, made her happy. And so it's a phrase that sometimes takes people back. A good death. Whoa, what? Well, again, a good life should lead to a good death. And I think the conversations, if anybody, if you hear anything today, it's have these conversations often and early. Whether it's with healthcare providers, your family, Tell people what you want. You get one chance to do this. And if there's ever a time, again, if there's ever a time in your life where you get to be completely focused on you and what you need, it would be at the end. One thing I would add, Jamie, is that, and I, I've had to say this often in the hospital when I, when I worked, especially in like critical care ICU situations, 
where families are trying to make treatment decisions and what do we do. And I, and I will say this a lot of times to my patients or to their caregivers is that the body has already decided it's dying. That's not necessarily something we choose. We don't, the body is dying. It's choosing that. Where we get to be very proactive and yes, it's, it's so difficult. I mean, I have suffered great loss and death at a very young age and, and I know that it is, I mean, I feel the, you know, the empathy for my patients and these families is they're not necessarily easy decisions, but we, the body is dying. How we actually die in terms of, will it be a good death? Will we be surrounded with those that we love? Will it be comfortable? That's what we get to decide. So if there's a, if people are listening today and they're feeling concerned that they're creating the death or they're exacerbating the death in terms or hastening the death, that's absolutely not true. It's, we are just honoring what the body is, is already doing. It's just, we get to have this choice in how that's going to look. And I think that's where the place of love comes in for those that we love, or even if you're living with this disease, choosing these things can truly be one of the greatest forms of love that we can show and receive. That's such, such great words, great advice. Kelly, thank you so much. Um, this has been incredibly helpful, incredibly moving, and you talking about it matter-of-factly, I think, makes it less scary and easier for people then to go forward and perhaps start to have these conversations with their families. You're welcome. If you enjoyed listening to the breastcancer.org podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to it on iTunes. It helps other listeners find our content and your support allows us to continue podcasting. Thanks.